Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I was the gateway drug to getting getting Labour voters to vote Conservative. The idea that you perform better in your mocks than you do in your real thing. I mean, has anyone in government talked to anybody who went through A-levels? Nigel is ultimate Marmite man, I guess. But it almost looks as though Boris and Cummings have chosen to surround themselves with a sea of idiots. So it's blast off number 12, another midsummer touchdown on Planet Normal, and she's back. Co-pilot Pearson returned from her holidays. She's refuelled, rebooted. She's ready for action. Her buns, as they say, have been sunned. (laughs) Alison, good to have you back on Planet Normal. Great to be back, Liam, and thanks very much to my substitute, the amazing Kate Hoey. I thought she was, I thought she handled you very well. (laughs) So it's been a big week. The UK economy is now officially in recession, having contracted for two successive quarters, news that's hardly surprising and which we'll come to. And we're recording, Alison, just as the A-level results are published in England and Wales. And what a head-spinning time for students and their parents, given that results are being driven by computer algorithms. And it's this exams fiasco, as you call it, that forms the basis of your first back-to-school Telegraph column this week. Yes, it certainly does, Liam. I mean, what a shambles. I mean, these poor kids. Back in March, I spoke to a bright 18-year-old, Liam. She lives not far from you, actually. And she predicted with uncanny accuracy what would happen when the results of her previous cohorts in her school were applied to give her class their grades. And that's exactly what happened. We had this kicking off in Scotland first thing, didn't we we saw that enormous numbers of children teachers had given predicted grades quite clearly I would argue in a national crisis to err on the side of generosity with young people whose hopes have been so blighted who've been sitting at home getting more depressed why not give them a little bit of confidence what harm does it do so then comes in this comes this computer algorithm used by the Scottish Qualifications Authority and that lowers the teachers predicted grades but specifically what it did is if you're a working class child, if you're a bright working class child, say called Liam Halligan, and you're in a school that's not much good, if you've done well in your A-levels or your Scottish hires, the algorithm will look and will say, but no, Liam can't have done well because all the previous generations for the last three years in his school have done badly. So we're going to take away his A and we're going to give him a C. And I'm not even allowed to swear on air, Liam, but I would be swearing. Trust me at this point. The air would be blue. I mean, this is this is the, the fundamental issue, isn't it? On the one hand, the authorities want to preserve the value of, of an A, an A star this year 
when exams haven't been taken compared to any other years. But on the other hand, they're taking teacher predictions and they're downgrading teacher predictions at schools where teacher predictions have tended to overstate reality in previous years. And they tend to be the less well-performing schools, if you like. And in that sense, the algorithm would seem to have in it a, a, a kind of anti-social mobility <laughs> yeah, aspect yeah. because it's deliberately downgrading at schools that don't generally do well. So if you're a really smart kid at a less well-performing school and you're, you know, you deserve even more credit if you're a really good student, then you're going to actually suffer under this algorithm system. And and we're recording this before the A-level results have actually been recorded. But I think we can predict that there's going to be a huge brouhaha and there could even be a very major government U-turn where Westminster government does for England and Wales what the Holyrood government has done in Scotland. At the very last moment, they've said, uh, forget the algorithm. You're basically going to get what your teachers predicted you were going to get. Well, what Gavin Williamson, I think, said last night in a you know another of his marvellous handbrake turns was that don't worry, kids, whatever happens, whatever the mess is, you know, whatever the algorithm gives you, you can have your mock, what you've got in your mock exams instead. Now, I actually trained as a teacher, Liam, and a number of my close friends are teachers. And let me tell you what a lot of schools say to kids, you've got your mock exams, don't worry, go into them do your best, but they we will use them to see where you've got, you know, your gaps in your That's knowledge. Right. So to say yeah. to somebody, oh, don't worry, we'll use your mock grade. I mean, most kids, I think, would expect to go up at least a grade or two in the actual exams. The idea that you perform better in your mocks than you do in your real thing. I mean, has anyone in government talked to anybody who went through A-levels? I mean, that's how many, what percentage of your class at school did better in their mocks than they did in their A-levels, Alison? You know, less than 5%, right? Less than 5%. And then on top of that, you get the fact that some schools will deliberately, to put the frighteners on students, will mark mocks very, very hard to give kids the proverbial kick up the backside in December or January or whenever it is that they take their mocks. So they get a kind of fair wind. The mock process is a bit like a, a sort of punishment beating to, to reveal to you and to everyone else what you don't know. And some teachers deliberately mark hard. Some schools deliberately mark mocks hard. Other schools where they feel it's all about people's state of mind and self-esteem, perhaps where students generally are weaker, may deliberately overstate progress in mocks in order to be, give people encouragement that they can actually get through these A-levels. Well, you, you, you know that, Liam, and I know that, and every, you know, every child in school in England and Wales and Scotland knows that, but uh, apparently the Department of Education hasn't, hasn't figured that out. A point I really want to make is it was perfectly possible for them not to postpone the exams. I completely agree Study ends basically in March anyway, when we saw the lockdown, and March to May is basically a revision period. Period. So that would have been the perfect time, wouldn't it, for teachers to be in touch online, keep the kids going. And as we know, you know, you'll, you'll remember being in those big echoey school halls with your, your desks at a kind of brilliant social distance. So taking exams would not have been a problem. And this is where we are now. They decided to dump the kids in it and it's an absolute fiasco. So that's exams. But amidst all the concern about that, another story is really punched through this week. And that's the UK's own migrant crisis. So far this year, there have been 
4,000 migrants, the government has just confirmed, who have crossed the channel illegally, mainly on small rubber dinghies. That compares to 1,850 during the whole of 2019, so a big, big increase. And it seems the people smugglers are urging hundreds of migrants to make channel crossings now before, quotes, Brexit closes the door. This story's been bubbling away for months, hasn't it? But only now it's burst through into the mainstream media. Well, I think obviously the, the very fine weather we're having is is making the crossings better. There's also been a, a sense, Liam, that apparently previously they were coming in trucks, but now that's been made much harder to come. They're actually now taking to boats. I mean, something, a personal take on this really is, you know, for, for several years I taught refugee women English and it it, it was such a a special valuable part of my life I look back on it immensely fondly and those were women who had come from places like Rwanda where their entire families have been killed and they've been gang raped and these were serious asylum seekers okay these were people who needed to be in a safe they were genuinely oppressed in their home country oppressed in their home country so the UK had a genuine obligation to give these people safety and a place they could call home. That's absolutely right. And what I feel is that if you object to these illegal migrants who are mainly young men who seem to have got a few thousand pounds to pay to these people traffickers, then you are, of course, accused on social media of lacking compassion. You know, Gary Lineker said this week, oh, they're all human beings. You know, I'm not sure that Gary's opening his mansion to all these people from Somalia. But so that's that's the way it plays. And it's just used against people who have perfectly legitimate objections. These guys, those young guys, they're jumping the queue over my Rwandan ladies, Liam. That's that's the way I that's see right. it. You know, the, 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 right. the people who have terrible stories to tell. I mean, you know, one woman I worked with had been electrocuted and still had marks on her and so on. So I think that there are these legitimate asylum seekers. We're a generous country. I hope we are. And uh, I think people want to welcome people who are in genuine distress and need. And then we have these people taking the piss, quite frankly. Of course, we need economic immigration as well as fulfilling our international obligations to give refuge to asylum seekers. We do need economic immigration in this country for all kinds of demographic and economic reasons. Over many, many generations, economic immigration into this country has driven this country and created the industry, the enterprise, the culture, the the, the vibrancy, which makes Britain a country that we can be proud of today. But there has to be a system so there's consent from the domestic population for this economic migration to happen. And while the system will always be imperfect, if it works properly, then it will be broadly accepted. You know, New Zealand has immigration controls, right? Canada has immigration controls. (laughs) These are the most liberal countries in the world. The UK should have immigration controls. You have to have a system where there are rules and the rules are imposed and the rules are seen to be genuine and credible. Because if you don't have that then you lose consent of the domestic population and far more radical politicians will use that resentment in order to promote some really nasty messages. 
for good and for ill, we are a magnet for the world. And with our own problems at the moment, you talked about the recession, and uh, we're looking down the barrel of 4 million, maybe even more unemployed, uh, that's going to have an effect on national attitudes to people coming in, isn't it? That's bound to. I I think it will. And given this migrant crisis, plus the UK's ongoing Brexit negotiations, and a sense among many Telegraph readers that we've picked up that the government now is drifting, you thought it might be time to invite a particularly eye-catching guest to Planet Normal. Yes, I did. You may be familiar with the name Nigel Farage. Nigel is an ultimate Marmite man, I guess. You know, I mean, he has, as you know, Liam, passionate followers and and also passionate detractors. Uh, Lots of people don't like him without really knowing him, is my sense. He has, I think, uh, a claim to being one of the most important British politicians of the last quarter century. When the history books are written, we will see that it was Farage who pressurised David Cameron into promising that they would hold a referendum on our membership of the EU. And we all know what what happened. And lately, we've seen him becoming very, very prominent on social media, looking into the migrant crisis. And I thought now was a really good time to go and talk to him about how he thought Brexit was doing, how Boris is doing. And what was it that interested him, particularly about the migrant crisis? I've been watching it, obviously, for the course of the last few years, having seen what happened in the Mediterranean back in 2015, 2016. And then it started in 2018, 2019, the numbers started to grow. And I was aware in April that the numbers coming had picked up significantly. So I wanted to find out why. And there were really two key reasons. The first is that virtually no one that comes into the country illegally ever gets removed, and that's a big sell for the traffickers. But the other thing was, because we're now in this transition period, having left the EU, the traffickers' big sell is, pay your money, we'll get you across to England, they'll put you in a nice four-star hotel, they'll give you £40 a week spending money, it'll be great, but if you don't come this year, by next year, they may well have left EU rules, and it might not be possible. So I could see what was going on. And when I first started tracking this, about a 1,000 people this year had come. And so I went down, spent some time in the channel, working out what was going on. And then I saw the most outrageous thing, that despite somewhere between 60 and £100 million of British taxpayers' money being given to the French in the last few years to stop this trade from happening, that actually the French Navy were escorting these boats into British waters, handing them over to Border Force or the lifeboats, who were then acting like a taxi service. And I wanted to blow the lid on that, which I did. Uh, To my astonishment, what I found on social media were millions and millions of people watching my films, interacting, and still nothing from mainstream media at all. But now, at last, they're onto it, and we're getting tough talk from the government. But remember, last August, Boris said illegal immigrants are illegal and will be returned to France. And there isn't much prospect right now of that happening. You actually found them being taken to quite a nice hotel. Isn't that right? Oh, yeah. I mean, what's happened is that the government have given out contracts. And one of the companies, Serco, who, of course, very much in the news at the moment, because mm. Test and Trace was their particular baby that hasn't worked out very <laughs> that's, well. That's worked well, um, hasn't it? Yeah. Oh, marvellous. You know, <laughs> have a think about this. Serco 
have been given a contract for two billion pounds, two billion pounds for the next 10 years to house illegal immigrants who come in and then try and go through the asylum claims process. And what's happening, Alison, is hotels are being filled up all over the country without any consultation, of course, with the local community. And the bizarrest thing I found was a hotel in Hoylake, just outside Liverpool, where not only was the whole hotel taken over, but somebody had paid for them to go on a trip of Anfield Stadium (laughs) the the week after Liverpool won the Premiership. I mean, so can you imagine? Because all these guys, and by the way, I say guys advisedly. Yes, it is is mainly young men, isn't it? Yeah, Yeah, let's not get conned by the woke media who will have you believe that everyone coming is an eight-month pregnant woman who suffered horrific abuse. 85% of those that cross the channel are young men between the ages of 18 and 26. They're deserting their families wherever they come from, Pakistan, Eritrea, Sudan, all over the world. Almost none of these young men would ever qualify under the 1951 Geneva Convention definition of what a refugee is. They're economic migrants. And, and, and frankly, I think for a country that voted Brexit, and one of the main reasons we did it was to get back control of our borders, and here we are with a Conservative government who told people at the election that immigration is something they were going to make a priority. I feel, frankly, what we're going through daily in the channel now is a national humiliation. But last year, the illegal boats crossing the channel accounted for about 0.59% of migration to the UK. So people might say to you, that's not such a big deal, is it? A few hundred people coming across the channel. Why are you making a big deal of it? We are now housing 48,000 people who have illegally come to this country, who want to claim asylum. Most will get rejected. Hardly any will ever get returned anywhere. So let's deal with the cost to begin with, shall we? Every single day, we have border force vessels in the channel. We have drones in the channel. We have spotter planes in the channel. We have lifeboat crews in the channel. Just the daily bill for this is hundreds of thousands. And now we have a bill, now we have a bill for accommodation alone of four billion pounds for the next 10 years. Plus on top of that, of course, 40 pounds a week spending money, free dental care, free health care. So there is a cost to this, but there's something even bigger here. And to even talk about this is to risk the wrath of the Guardianistas or or virtually anyone these days, which is we don't know who these young men are. We haven't got a clue. But what we do know is some of them that are coming bring with them sympathies for extreme Islamist views. We've already seen this play out in Sweden, in Germany, in France. And I would remind people, and it's a very sobering thought, But of the eight men that committed those barbarities in Paris a few short years ago, five of them got into France on inflatable boats across the Mediterranean. And I know, Alison, just this week, okay, of a case of somebody who was removed from a hotel in the Northwest because he was trying to radicalise the other inmates in the hotel. So this is an issue, too, of national security. I was looking 
back. And in 2018, Sajid Javid, who was then the Home Secretary, declared that illegal migrants crossing from France was a major incident. He spoke about working more closely with his French counterpart. He appointed a senior commander to do something about it. <laughs> isn't this what the French call déjà vu, Nigel? <laughs> yeah, it certainly is, isn't it? With all the tough talk from Pretty Patel this week and you open the mm. newspapers and there's the Royal Navy, what's left of it, is going to be in the channel. None of it's going to make any difference, OK? None of it. For two reasons. The first is that under the EU's Dublin Convention, Mm. you can claim asylum in the first country you lodge the papers in. Most of them don't claim asylum in France. They wait to come here. And under EU rules, that makes it difficult to send them back. But the real issue is this. Australia faced a very similar situation a decade ago, all right? The boats were coming from Indonesia. So you were dealing with larger distances, bigger boats, more people, but the principle was exactly the same. What the Australian Prime Minister, Tony Abbott, did, not just turn boats around and tow them back to Indonesia, but more significantly, what he said is that anybody that comes into Australia via this route will never be allowed to claim refugee status. And if this government had the political will. And yes, I know they'll be condemned by the United Nations and the Labour Party and probably some in their own party. But unless we do that, we're not going to stop this. And it's just as simple as that. I think something that annoys me is that if you point any of this stuff out, as you've done so ably, there's a sort of, you're not very compassionate. But what strikes me, you know, I've work with refugee women, genuine asylum seekers. So it's the people who follow the correct channels who may well have a legitimate claim to be here because of oppression in their own countries. These people are being queue-jumped, aren't they, by these illegal young men, many of whom seem to be able to pay thousands of pounds for their passage, which doesn't suggest that they're in tremendous difficulty, does it? No, and they've got lovely Nike shoes, of course, and they've got the most up-to-date Apple iPhones and all the rest of it. Look, Mm. I mean, let's be fair. I'm sure there are some people who are coming who have come from horrendous circumstances. I'm sure there are. Mm. But the vast majority, as I say, would never qualify as refugees. And it's so difficult to have a, a sensible conversation about this without people branding you, screaming at you. Truth of it is, I've met over the last three months many members of the ethnic communities who feel just as strongly about this as you and I do. Conservative voters had really high hopes of Pretty Patel, didn't they? You know, a new Mrs. Thatcher, pocket rocket. She's going to crack down on immigration, on crime. These, as you say, huge displays at Dover. She's appointed mm. Dana Mahoney as the, the splendidly titled UK's clandestine channel <laughs> commander. <laughs> Nigel, has Pretty been nobbled? What's happened? Look, I mean, you know, I know Pretty Patel. I like her. I think her instincts are right. She's a conservative, which is a very rare thing in the current conservative cabinet, because they're mostly a bunch of kids with rich daddies who play at politics. They're absolutely careerists. But of course, the real problem is that Boris isn't really a conservative, is he? I mean, Boris is a metro liberal. Boris, as mayor of London more than once, talked about having amnesties for all Mm. illegal immigrants who were in London. He does not seem to have the political will to deal with this. I feel a bit sorry for her, actually, because I think she's being left a bit high and dry. And you mentioned there law and order. Even more worrying to me at the moment than what is going on across the channel is the outbreaks of lawlessness 
that we are now seeing around the country. And the number of people in the last couple of weeks I've spoken to who just say, do you know what, Nigel, we're going to get out of London. We just do not want our kids growing up in a city where the police have now given up and lost control. The vast, vast majority of conservative supporters and voters, and particularly in that red wall, that helped give Boris you know, his, his majority, they want to live in a country where the police are in control, where we have proper law and order. And I think Boris is in danger of losing Middle England on these subjects. I really do. Hello, I'm Christopher Hope, but my pals call me Chopper. And you can too. Just dropping into my second favourite podcast tell you about another Telegraph show, mine. As a Telegraph's chief political correspondent, I spend my days holding politicians to account and asking them about the things that affect you. I speak to the top politicians from across the political spectrum, commentators with their finger on the pulse, and of course, my talented colleagues at the Telegraph. So if that sounds like your cup of tea, please search Chopper's Politics, wherever you're listening to this. Cheerio! You very nobly stood down several of your Brexit party candidates during the general election, giving Boris and the Tories a really good chance in a lot of the Red Wall constituencies, which they duly won and got this great majority of 80. Do you have any regrets about backing Boris now? Well, I mean, all of those voters in the Red Wall, nearly every single one of them had voted either for UKIP or the Brexit party first. I was the gateway drug to getting, <laughs> like, to, yeah. to, to get, to getting Labour voters to yeah. sort of Nigel vote Farage, the, the, the marijuana of politics. Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think, I, but I, I really think I was. Look, we were in a very difficult position. Boris had gone to Brussels last October, had signed a withdrawal agreement that really wasn't any better than Mrs May's efforts. It was dreadful. I did my best to point this out. But the country had just had enough, had enough of months of parliamentary deadlock, had enough of the Mm. endless games of Remainers trying to force us into a second referendum. And when the Prime Minister, in his usual cheery, optimistic way, said this is a wonderful oven-ready deal, people said, oh, great, isn't that marvellous? We're now going to get Brexit. So as I faced that election, I had a huge dilemma as to what to do. In the end, I got him to effectively publicly renege on the deal that he'd said was oven ready when he made a statement to say, we will not have regulatory alignment, despite the fact the document made it perfectly clear that we would. And in those circumstances, I thought, no, look, what do I do? What do I do? If I put up Brexit Party candidates against the Conservatives in many of these seats, and if we spend the campaign tearing the document to pieces, saying Boris is not telling us the truth, the only effect of that, particularly in the South and Southwest, would have been to allow a couple of a dozen Liberal Democrats to win seats. Mm. I thought if after all these years, Alison, of what I'd done, the effect in that election was to lead to a second referendum, it would have been a failure. So Boris moved his position. I stood down 317 candidates. And to be fair, ever since that moment, David Frost, the chief negotiator, has said the right things. He said, look, we're going to be an independent country. Of course, Michel Barnier is furious. Mm. He thinks the British negotiating position is reneging on what they shook hands on last October. Truth is, Barnier does have a point. <laughs> but <laughs> what well, he does. But, but, you know, as we head into these next few months... The final shape of Brexit is yet to be seen. 
My own sense of it is that there will be a deal. I think it's just the instinct of British Really? Governments. You think there yes. will? Yes, I do. I think we'll find ourselves still subject to some EU rules, probably in areas like state aid. I suspect things like our potential financial liability to the European Investment Bank will remain. My guess is that 2020 will go down in the history books as the year that we left the European Union. But for those of us who campaigned for decades, for us to be genuinely free, it won't quite be the victory that we wanted. I was just coming to that because, Nigel, the last time we met, slightly implausibly, was on stage at the Cadogan Hall (laughs) and we were singing Land of Hope and Glory. It was great. Waving Union Jack with the great chopper, Christopher Hope, and Halligan was there, of course. And it was peak Brexit, wasn't it? And I think... It was. We, so many of us... I mean, you more than anyone, really. But we felt this great sense of elation and relief that against enormous odds, with most of the establishment pitted against us, we had left the European Union. So do you still trust Boris on Brexit? Oh, I've never wholly trusted him on Brexit. I mean, let's be honest about it. Boris came to the Brexit campaign at 10 minutes to midnight, but thank God he did. Mm. You know, it was very important that he did. During that referendum campaign, He was the voice that was able to reassure middle-class conservative, reasonably well-off types living in Surrey and Cheshire that it would be okay. So he had an important role in it. And he's gone full Brexiteer in public. I suspect more out of politics than out of conviction. But as long as he delivers, it doesn't matter, does it? As long as he does what he said he's going to do, it doesn't matter. I just worry that we'll make one or two compromises that we'll live to regret And I worry that we'll have to revisit some of this in the years to come. But I also sense, one of the reasons I've not been shouting too loudly about all of this is because I just think the public have had enough. They've just had enough. And they're worried about other things. Boris's problem is that Middle England is beginning to lose hope with him on law and order, on the immigration thing. And dare one mention it, the handling of the COVID crisis, which frankly has been a shambles. Yes, I I was just going to come to that. What do you think? How do you think they've done? And and, and why do you think we're in the state we're in now? Well, they were indecisive in the early days. And delaying that lockdown by an extra four or five days probably doubled infection in the country. They did nothing about millions of people flying in to the country from infected areas. There were absolutely no checks of any kind at all. Mm. Then they went the other way and got very (laughs) high-handed. And we got this ridiculous figure, Hancock, who, as if he's just been made a school prefect and he's terribly important and he's wearing a different tie to all the rest of us, telling us what we can and can't do. And and we've seen a succession of ministers standing up at those five o'clock press conferences. I mean, Alok Sharma, does he exist? (laughs) You know, this sort of wooden, going through the motions, reading off autocue, people put in senior positions who've never run anything in their lives. And, And I think the truth is it's been a shambles. Yeah, I mean, a lot of them don't look like the A-team, do they? No. And you compare that to the kind of figures we had in Cabinet, just going back 20, 30, 40 years, they really do look like, you know, I said it earlier, and it's true, a lot of them have got rich daddies, and they've never had to really work in their lives. Politics is their plaything. They've got no principles. They've got no achievements in the world. They're a pretty low-grade bunch. And it does, I mean, Boris, of course, is by far the best of all of mm. them, but I will say that. But it almost looks as though Boris and Cummings have chosen to surround themselves with a sea of idiots 
so that nobody can actually challenge them. Say what you think, Nigel. Don't hold back, darling. Well, I Don't do hold tend back. <laughs> and then, of course, you've got Rishi handing out the money. And, of course, he's terribly popular. But generally, it's a cabinet with very little real experience of life, of politics, of anything else. And I do really wonder whether what Boris needs to do is to get some much more senior, much more experienced people as part of the team. Are you wearing a mask? Are you pro-mask, anti-mask? Look, I'm for anything that gets our high streets busy again, that gets people out spending money. And if the price of that is wearing a mask, I'm prepared to do it. But I think we should encourage people to do it, educate them to do it, not force them to do it on fear of a fine. And that, that is the bit that I object to. But happy to be back down the pub. Presumably. Yeah. Although, I, I mean, I have to say, one of my locals was doing off sales all through lockdown. So, you know, I'd pop down at six o'clock with my empty four pint milk can, you know, and get that. Um, yeah, I mean, look, I think for the whole hospitality industry, it's been pretty grim. And I must say, London this week, difficult to find anywhere to go for lunch, because basically everywhere's closed. So I don't think we've seen the last of this. I have to say, in terms of the economy, in terms of the long-term effects of this crisis, I am much more pessimistic, much more bearish than much of a talk out there. You know, I keep hearing about V-shaped recoveries and all the rest of it. And frankly, I don't believe any of it because I think we're going to get some real behavioural change from this. I think people, particularly the under 40s, for whom the culture of thrift has been destroyed over the last couple of decades, destroyed by zero interest rates, destroyed by houses being unaffordable. And so you've seen young people living on their credit cards, living beyond their means year after year after year, never believing that a rainy day might come. Well, they've now seen, as generations before them saw, that rainy days do happen, that the history of mankind says this. And I think what will happen is people will start to save more and spend less I think we'll be a slightly less consumerist society than we've been. And all of that says that there is, of course, this paradox of saving, which means that less money circulates through the system. So I think we're in for a deeper economic shock than most people want to think at the moment. Now, I'm not going to ask us to do a reprise of Land of Hope and Glory. Much <laughs> though Planet Normal listeners would, would I think I think we'd had a couple of drinks. No. I think we just no. had a couple of drinks. And I, I think it was after that event that Halligan and I shared a taxi home and cooked up Planet Normal, which continues Land of Hope and Glory by other means. Uh, Nigel, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on Planet Normal. Please come back again and keep us posted on what everyone's thinking. It's a delight to be here. Big fan of both of you. Keep doing what you do. Well, that's going to generate some newspaper headlines. Boris has surrounded himself by a sea of (laughs) idiots and is at risk of losing Middle England. He has kept his head down lately, hasn't he, Mr Farage, until now? Yeah, he has been, by his standards, very low profile. But, Liam, you know, I think his... His political instincts are second to none. You know, he that was very interesting, wasn't it? He said that he thought people had had enough of Brexit. And I think I think that's spot on. I think he, far more than any of the present government, he sort of senses which way the wind is blowing. And I do think it's interesting that he was homing in on the fact that certain Conservative voters are losing heart with Boris over law and order. And what Nigel, I think, was saying is Pretty Patel's instincts. You know, he said that brilliant thing that, you know, she's she's a Conservative, which is rare in the present government. And and I think there's some truth in that. What do you think? I think so. And I think also that Farage and Boris are just very, very different people from different necks of the political woods, if you like. And the fact that they're both 
Brexiteers just illustrates the extent to which Brexit is something that appeals to all parts of the population. So there are many shades of grey here, but I think this was quite a big attack by Farage on Boris uh, and an attack on him that we haven't heard from the former Brexit Party leader for some I think time. Alec Sharma, does he exist? Is um, that 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 could be a <laughs> Oxbridge philosophy question, couldn't it? I th- I think it's great. You know what, Nigel? What, what where <laughs> Nigel isn't wrong is the voters that Boris has borrowed from the Red Wall. They are expecting a clampdown. And they are they are very strong on patriotism in a way that the metropolitan part of the Labour Party doesn't understand. And they're very, very strong on law and order. Very strong. They're also voters who are well used to dealing, if you like, with racial integration and the dangers if racial integration isn't successful. You know, a lot of northern towns there really has been quite a lot of racial tension because the town splits into two halves rather than having a more integrationist policy. So there are many areas here that Johnson has to grapple with and he won't thank Farage for pointing them out to him in the way that he just did in your interview. But there was something else I wanted to focus on because in my discussions with Nigel Farage over the years, not only has he got a very shrewd political antenna, he's also got a pretty good feel for economics. And I agree with him on his assessment of the economy at the moment. We heard this week, it wasn't really news. It was like sort of telling, you know, we can now confirm that the sea is wet because we've jumped (laughs) in it. We can now confirm that elephants are heavy animals because we've put them on the scales. We knew this anyway, but the UK has now gone into recession, two successive quarters of negative growth of the economy contracting. That was obvious. What really caught my eye, though, is that there has been a relatively sharp recovery in June and July, according to the official data and survey data that followed it. But we're still quite a long way behind the other big economies of the world, particularly the US, uh, the Chinese, whose lockdown was much, much earlier, and some European economies too. A lot of the reason why the UK economy has contracted so sharply in the second quarter is that a lot of our lockdown was during the second quarter because our lockdown was later than much of the rest of continental Europe and certainly than than Asia. It's also because we're a service sector economy, you know, where much of our economy is customer facing, 80% of our GDP is services and related activity, which of course suffer far more under social distancing measures. I think the end of furloughing is going to be very, very contentious. During this month of August, employers are paying pensions and and NICs for workers. The government is still paying 80% of monthly wages up to two and a half grand maximum a month. It tapers out during September and then October. And from the beginning of November, the scheme disappears completely. But, you know, you could well get Um, You're already getting trade unions saying, of course, furlough should be extended. You're getting very sensible members of the Labour Party, like former Chancellor Alistair Darling, for whom I have a lot of respect, saying we should extend furlough. I no doubt you'll get Nicola Sturgeon saying we're going to extend furlough in Scotland and the English are going to pay for it. So this will be very, very difficult. And that's when the real macroeconomic strategy of the government will be tested and currency markets are going to be looking very closely. And the ability of the government to keep borrowing, 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 borrowing with the Bank of England 
buying up many of the bonds in financial markets in this kind of Ponzi scheme that we've talked about on Planet Normal over the recent weeks and months. That's when that is really going to be tested. But it's balancing it, Liam, isn't it? Because, of course, yes, it's a Ponzi scheme and, yes, we're borrowing up to our necks and that's not ideal. But there are millions of lives at stake, aren't there? And I, I read, actually, that, that what that what France is doing is it, it's following a German-type scheme. You, I can't even pronounce it. something like Klaus Wert or something. And that means people go back to work and the employers pick up, obviously, a certain percentage of the salary and the government tops up. And I was wondering whether it's unfair when certain businesses, when we're still under these very onerous conditions, that they can't flourish, can they? So you're effectively saying we're withdrawing your furlough, but you're still not back to normal to be able to trade. And you and I, you know, we've been into town. I mean, I, every time I go to London, I get a real fright because... It's a ghost town. I, the centre of London's a ghost town. I think the most shocking thing, I don't know if I mentioned this to you, was walking past Selfridges, which is normally, you know, height of snooty palace of sophistication. There were members of Selfridges staff in the street trying to get people to go into the shop, like, you know, like Brick Lane Curry House owners or, you know. Be- being uh, ushered into a tequila bar in, in uh, on Ibiza yeah. or something. <laughs> Or, or in the, or in Amsterdam for slightly more nefarious purposes. But yeah, I mean, imagine that Selfridges staff. And after I saw them on that day doing that humiliating thing for such a great department store, a few days later they announced 490 jobs gone from Selfridges. Debenhams this week has announced even more. Well, that's on the main shopping street, arguably of the world, right? Certainly of Europe. <laughs> that that is the 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 high altar of consumerism is Oxford Street, right? No mystery why why you're so often there, <laughs> Alison. But yeah, how about market towns? How about hollowed out parts of the UK where the high street has already been suffering for for several years because of the onslaught of online retailing and very high business rates uh, and planning law and all the rest of it. I do think there will be a sort of moment of very deep national reflection in October. It may be that we adopt something like the the, the Germany's uh, Kurzarbeit scheme, which has been around for a long time, which tries to uh, level out level out the I peaks and troughs the of, of, of the labour markets. But it, it must, of course, be true that the Chancellor has to balance helping people with the broader ability of Britain to pay its way and not collapse in some systemic financial mess like the 2008-2009 crisis. Because if that happens, the economy will only get worse. There'll be a lot more deaths, COVID or no COVID. So let's have some listener emails, Alison. Thanks to all of you who wrote into us at planetnormal at telegraph.co.uk. Keep those emails coming. Alison, what's caught your eye? Two angry mums, Mary Jones. I don't see why exams could not have been taken. There are plenty of sports halls, community centres where pupils could have been socially distanced and some of the teachers could actually have earned some of their full pay by invigilating. Who marks A-level papers? Those who do it could also have interrupted their summer of leisure to actually do their job. Any teacher who refuses to go into school in September should be sacked on the spot. And then from Caroline, in the same vein, how many flip-flops can Gavin Williamson manage in the next 24 hours? Hours. His resignation is long overdue. Here, here. <laughs> <laughs> On that note, <laughs> cabinet ministers resigning. 
Sarah emailed to say, thank goodness for Planet Normal, to which my husband Simon and I look forward each week. Uh, daily Planet Normal will be oh. even better, by the way. We've been thinking now, Simon and I, with Planet Normal attracting so many citizens, in quotes, we're going to need a government. Ah. So how about you and we listeners compile our own fantasy cabinet? <laughs> and as a starter, this is what Sarah says. Personally, we'd like to see either of you as Prime Minister, but feel we ought to keep Liam for Chancellor. So that makes you PM, Alison. <laughs> but then they say, but Alison could be a bit of a liability <laughs> because she'd have a crush on all the male world leaders. <laughs> That's, that's a scandalous thing to say. I can't think of a single world leader. I what about Macron? Obligatoire. Uh, you, you obligatoire. Like I do like him. Yeah. Putin, maybe, maybe not. So that's it for Voyage number 12. Time to return again from planet normal to the madness of the real world. Thanks so much to all of you for your emails. Keep them coming at planetnormal at telegraph.co.uk. If you've enjoyed the show, and why not, please tell your friends and family, anyone in your life who you think might enjoy the kind of discussions you've just heard. We'd be really grateful if you could leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. This podcast is free to listen to on the Telegraph website or by subscribing on your podcast app on your smartphone or iPad. And subscribing to a podcast, as we say each week, has nothing to do with subscribing to The Telegraph itself. It just means the podcast automatically downloads onto your phone or tablet each week so you don't miss an episode. And if you have any questions about podcasts, how to listen, where to find the best ones, there's a really useful article explaining everything on The Telegraph website. And we'll put the link to that in the show notes of this episode. And finally, finally, before we go... Here's some more of your health and safety emails, your recollections of the health and safety practices of yesteryear or the lack of them, stuff we did as kids that did us no harm. What you got, Alison? Oh, uh, spoil for choice again. Please keep this coming. (laughs) There's been a deluge, a tsunami. (laughs) We go to Lisa Grant, a story from the late 70s. I was around 12 and hanging out in in the recreation ground with my two brothers. We had a rope swing on a huge tree and the challenge was to swing up to the branch, do a somersault over the branch and then swing back down. My younger brother, Richard, who was around eight, did the hard part, which was the initial swing, then the somersault. But for some reason, he then completely froze. At first we thought it was funny, but as time dragged on, we were cajoling, irritable, bossy, etc. in turn, trying to force him down. But he was petrified and could not move. Not surprising as a fall from that height could have been catastrophic. We had absolutely no concern about his safety, but we knew we'd be in big trouble at home if we were late for tea. This is a lovely bit. Salvation came from an unexpected quarter. At the bottom of the field, a new pavilion was being built. The workmen had been watching the drama unfold and decided to take matters into their own hands. They drove up to the tree with a JCB and delicately manoeuvred it so that the bucket lifted up at full stretch until it formed a platform under Richard's feet. He then simply had to crouch down in the JCB bucket and the kind builder lowered him gently to the floor all the while. As if he was a little kitten. A little kitten. (laughs) What a skilled operation in hindsight. We made it back for tea with an unspoken agreement not to breathe a word. This story only came out to my mum after several drinks at Christmas a couple of years ago, 40 years after the incident took place. Brilliant. So that's it for our 12th journey to Planet Normal. News and views from beyond the bubble. Keep the emails coming on health and safety and anything else. 
And as we leave planet normal and speed back to our mad, mad world, thanks as ever to our producers, Louisa Wells and Elliot Lampett, and our editor, Theo Leludis. Alison and I will meet you on the launch pad next week for voyage number 13 to planet normal, who will be the lucky guest that time. And until then, it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from him. Hi, it's Liam again. Just to say, if you're a Telegraph subscriber and fancy having an online chat with Alison and me, then head to telegraph.co.uk forward slash community at 11am every Thursday after each new edition of Planet Normal is released first thing on Thursday morning. You'll find an article at the top of that page where we'll both spend an hour replying live to readers' and listeners' comments. Join in the conversation. Leave a comment and tell us what you think, and we'll reply. Planet Normal. News and views from beyond the bubble.